Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 102, the one about deepfake AI, marketing by numbers, the Threads app, and Casino Royale. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a co-host, a marketing speaker, and consultant who spent his whole career helping his customers get their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is a digital marketing veteran. He's a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. All the way from La France, please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much for the introduction. Yes, this remains an international production. Thank you to all our viewers and listeners. A quick shout out to Making Stang Sang, who's uh, done some great tweets, who stumbled upon our bloopers, Roger, and had a well of a time going through them, but also a brand new YouTube subscriber, Ian Sutherland, who's joined us over the weekend. Oh, yeah. M making has played an absolute blind. And do you know what? I mean, I, I, as you said, we, I often watch the blooper reels just to cheer myself up, but the, the making did a video of herself watching the, uh, the blooper reel and laughing and laughing and laughing. And her laugh is so contagious. I was in hysterics as well. It's almost like contagious laughter going all over the internet. So making every time I watch you watching the bloopers, it makes me happy. <laughs> oh, very much so. So thank you very much for that. It was a three, we're three level of laughing. We could see ourselves. <laughs> On video, we could see making uh, laughing, and then we were laughing at the whole thing. Uh, super, but you know, in, in a way, when we started this three years ago during the pandemic, it, it was born out of you know having almost daily phone conversations to cheer each other uh, each other up and lift our spirits. And one of us, if not at the same time, we said, you know, we should record this because perhaps this <laughs> this conversation will help others as well. And, and here we are three years later, episode one or two. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And we've come such a long way. No, we have indeed. So we're going to go through our usual segments. We're going to begin with In the News, then we'll complete our journey of rediscovery, what it means to be a market and business owner to this economy with film marketing. And it was your turn to choose today's film, Yes, indeed. And we're going back to a Bond film and talking about refreshing and rebooting. We're going to have a look at Casino Royale from 2006. Crikey, how long ago is that now? And it still feels to me as as if it's a recent film, but a, a landmark Bond film, a reboot, complete change of direction for the series and really excited to be talking about that one later. Indeed, and with, with the marketing challenges that, that came with it, because mm -hmm. it was uh, four years since we mm -hmm. had to, you know, um, we, we had obviously Piers Brosnan with, um, um, oh goodness, is it another Die Another Day? Die Another Day, yeah, I need to give you the French version there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, as a marketer's four-year gap, you know, how do you engage with the audience? How do you introduce new characters and so on? I just can't wait to chat to you about it. But before we do so, let's move in with our first segment in the news. The importance consumers place on price in their purchase decisions has risen by an average of 5% compared to the start of the pandemic. By comparison, the importance placed on sustainability has remained consistent since before COVID, fluctuating by a maximum of 
Well, listen to this. The often overlooked P of price seems to be out of favor with marketers in the current economic climate as four out of five rank defending and growing profit margins through price, the least important task for a marketing department. A lobby group UK Finance has written to the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt requesting tech companies take responsibility for payment fraud on their platforms, specifically Meta, who is connected to over 60% of all push payment fraud. According to research by recruitment company Hayes, 78% of marketing employers are not currently using AI in their work. The top reason, given is a gap in knowledge and the lack of awareness of the benefits at 40%. Virgin Voyages has launched the Gen AI Invitation Tool. Soon you will be able to send an AI-generated message from Jennifer Lopez to friends and family about joining you on your next trip. Okay, well, an advert on LinkedIn for a head of operations, Tesla Electric Retail Energy, revealed Tesla's intention to move into the UK energy market. It is understood there will be a specific emphasis on the individuals who own the latest Tesla Powerwall home battery. The popular podcast app Stitcher will officially close on the 29th of August, just over 15 years after it was first launched. Subscribers can still listen to podcasts within the Sirius XM app, whilst others will have to find an alternative. Well, that's me. Everyone is talking about how everyone is talking about the marketing of the movie Barbie. From the BBC to Forbes to the Marketing Society to Gary Vaynerchuk and many others, all praising the film marketing strategy approach, in particular partnerships. Ooh. Wow, what a set of news. Can I go back to the very, very start? Because I'm very perplexed, Roger Edwards, about price. <sighs> so this being, you know, the number one, I mean, we've been uh, actually, you know, in the news, as I've said before, is almost like the barometer of what goes on on the consumer side, in particular B2B, B2C or P2P. So, of course, people are concerned about, you know, price. I, I'm I'm staggered that uh, price as part of the four seven P's, depending on how you want to look at it, is seen as the least important. They should at least be of equal importance. Where do you stand with that? Oh, this is this is just depressing, isn't it? I mean, it, it backs up something that we've been saying on the show right the way back to the first episode is that marketing these days is unfortunately seen as just promotion. And I actually genuinely think that unfortunately, a lot of marketers out there either have never been taught the entire discipline, which includes price, of course, or they they have do, uh, they are given no responsibility for it. And indeed they are told just to focus on promotion. So on the one hand, it's sort of, it's understandable that if you're not responsible for the P of price and the, you're only responsible for the P of promotion, then you're not going to focus on it, are you? And that may be the, the people here who have ranked at the least important. But for people like us who have always said that the marketing discipline is a much wider um, area of responsibility from research to product development to, to strategic goals to targeting and positioning and price and product and place and promotion you know it's absolutely core to the marketing mix and you know your business needs to make money you know it needs to make profit it needs to cover its costs it needs to grow and to see that people see it as the as the least important is genuinely worrying. A, from the point of view that it proves that marketing as a discipline is shrinking. But secondly, you can't run a company and think that what your price <laughs> is, is not important. It's, it just sta staggers me. 
And maybe, you know, you're onto something which has been removed, you know, from someone's brief, because my memory is very clear on that one. Once I decided that marketing was something I would be passionate about, and in fact, I would argue it was more about customer experience as a result of which, you know, the, the marketing comes out of that. I'm sure um, promotion was the last of the consideration once you've established you know, what the product is, um, the place message, process people, and all the others, and price, of course. And then you know what on earth you meant to be communicating to your customers. And so I find that the whole thing just a little um, d- disappointing like you, but also a-, a concern because you know what marketers do particularly well, and, and often they are not listened to, I- I'll grant you that, is they really understand, you know, the current psyche and mood of the, the the targets, and if you know, as we've known now for the, I would say, I would argue almost for an entire year now, if price is of concern to your to your customers, you should be right in the middle of it and doing, like I say, comparisons and and if you want to essentially continue to sell a premium product at a high price, then you have to communicate to your customers why indeed the price is higher than than most. Yeah, and and okay. Imagine you are one of those people who is in marketing, but you have only been given responsibility for the P of promotion. It's undoubtedly the case that your P of promotion will be promoting the price at some point. You know, it may be a buy one, get one free or discount or or sale until the end of the week or whatever it is. But you will be communicating at some point the price that your product is um is being um sold for and you should take an interest in that even if you're not responsible for it you should be taking an interest in it to understand how it contributes to the profits and the margins of the business you work for if you're a marketer who is responsible for the wider discipline and, and i hope you are then absolutely make sure that you're on top of this and understand it you know if you are if you if you do make a decision to go out there and do a buy one get one free or a, a 10% discount ask yourself whether that's eating into your margins too much because you get away with a 5% discount or do you run the sale for a, a shorter period don't just it may immediately think, oh, we'll just do a discount and we'll pile out a load of communications about it. Learn how it works and how it fits in with the entire marketing mix. No, absolutely. Let's move on to maybe my second surprise for this in the news segment. This business of AI not being used currently by 10 to 8% of marketing employers because of a gap in knowledge and lack of awareness. Either people live in the different planets that, that I do, but the lack of awareness, I can't believe a word of it. I mean, for goodness sake, there's not one article, there's not one feed, there's not one advert on social media that is not AI related. So uh, there's something in there that maybe needs to be to be looked at. And then I want to link it to get your reaction about Virgin Voyages. I, I don't mind people experimenting with fun kind of uh, tricks like you know an AI Gen- Jennifer Lopez, but. Um, my perception is that when you go on the holiday, it is not to be with your friends and family. You want to you want to break from them. For what on earth would you send a message from Jennifer Lopez about come and join me on this amazing Virgin Voyages? But jesting aside, there's there's clearly still some disconnect between AI and its use. We may even talk about the, the Barbie marketing campaign. What would you make of this idea of lack of awareness of AI and its impact? Actually, in some respects, it doesn't surprise me because I, we, you and I live in a bit of a marketing bubble, so we are going to mm. be exposed to all the hype all the time. And, and, and let's face it, Pascal, we actively search it out 
seek it out, don't we? Because we are wanting to be up to date with what's happening. I, I, I'm not sure that a lot of companies, you know, if you're doing the marketing for a cafe or something like that, you might not, you might not be even thinking about AI. I mean, I remember jokingly going up to the um, Sizzler's Burger van at Fisher O'Harbor and asking them whether they'd included Chat GTP in their <laughs> marketing plans, and the woman just looked at me and says, "What on earth is Chat?" Actually, she used a much more uh, um, evocative phrase than uh, "what on earth." It was "what the f- is uh, Chat GTP?" But may- maybe some companies just aren't there. And and again, I'm not sure that the definition of AI is actually understood. I mean, a lot of people, if you say AI to them, they immediately go to the sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, "I'll be back," Skynet, "end of the world" type of thing. Whereas I think a lot of times these days, a basic computer program, which is running a series of data points, is now termed to be AI. Mm. So a lot of companies who are using Excel spreadsheets to sift through data could probably claim that they're using AI, you know, because Microsoft has built in algorithms into it, its systems just like everything else. So I, I'm not sure that we have a common definition of ai that everybody in the world understands so at the one end you've got the skynet end of the world and at the other end you've just got basic computer programs and then anything in between could fit in with a definition of ai and, and indeed this is such early stages isn't it i mean if it wasn't for the fact that somebody probably you know made a rush a rash decision to release chat gpt open ai freely in the autumn of last year but we, we're not even a year in and i think what this is telling us is that which has been the case if i look back on my career and the evolution of digital marketing um each sector needs to have almost like a champion that says you know if you work in the um food and drink industry, if you work in hospitality, if you work in the airline industry and and motoring and and all the other sectors, this is how, and this is our version of how we're going to be exploiting, you know, what AI can do to be more productive and creative and so on. And I think you're right. It's almost like, you know, a, a general message got, has been sent out there. And as we well know, with marketing, you can't do generic strap lines. You mm, just no. doesn't, you know, engage, engage the audience um, whatsoever. I want to talk about the film Barbie, but like everybody else, <laughs> the marketing of the movie Barbie. So it's not going to be we told you so moment from Roger and I, but we've been talking about film marketing campaigns for uh, three years. We, you know, I've done now, as of today, would it be more than 100 reviews of marketing. The idea being you can learn from other sectors. So the, for me, it's more validation from brands like BBC, Forbes, and so many other that they've talked more about the marketing of the movie than the movie itself. But here's the thing, Roger. I have not seen anything whatsoever on my feed on social media and in my inbox and more about the movie Barbie. So whilst on one hand people talk about digital and AI being super productive and hyper-targeted and so on, I don't think there is, there's been a day in my entire life where I've not spoken about movies. Even at weekends, I, I post on Facebook about movies and what we've watched and so on. And how is it that you know the clever marketers at Barbie and Mattel have not see it fit to tell Pascal about the amazing movie. Well, I have seen adverts for it in Good, my Facebook right. feed, uh, which goes to prove that maybe there's a bit of targeting here going on and that they've mm-hmm. got it wrong in both respects because um, I'm not interested in Barbie at all, and you probably are because you're, you're a filmmaker. Uh, but that's beside the point. I mean, I have seen the odd advert, and 
to be perfectly honest, it, it didn't catch my attention other than the fact that there's a lot of pink in it, as you would expect. Mm. Um, and um, obviously, the uh, who who's the actress who's playing Barbie and who's the actress that's playing Ken, assuming Ken's in it. I've not really looked into it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the very concept of a Barbie movie just doesn't interest me at all. Um, I just can't. What, what, what on earth would it be? Would it be, although on the other side of the coin, you know, Toy Story isn't too far advanced, is it, from a, a story about um, about toys? So yeah, I do admit to a certain curiosity, but it's definitely not a film I'd be going to the cinema to see, and it's probably not a film that I would buy on Blu-ray. I would probably wait until it streams, and, yeah. and, and as long as I can stream it for free, I might give it a look. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't attract my attention whatsoever, but I guess I'm not the target market. Well, well quite, yeah. You know, and but, but for me, it's just that, which is the validation of, well, you know, here it is. You know, people talk about film marketing now in mainstream media, um, so that, that's good. But it still shows that... It's not perfect, you know. Uh, so for all of us, when we think about our marketing strategies and the components, if you look at, if you're going to do a pie chart, if you like those kind of things, and the different kind of sources of leads and inquiries, you cannot put all, you know, your hopes and, and wishes and budget on social media because here it is. Um, someone like me, I would have fully expected to have been targeted because of behavior, historical data, and that kind of things, and it hasn't happened. So you've got to mix it up. And, it, and clearly, this is what they've done. So, um, I mean, put it this I want to re reassure you, uh, Roger, <laughs> I have no intention to put Baldi in the list of film marketing potentials. We leave that to all, all the others, and we can read up about it. As always, immense fun to go through the news and get your reaction. But we're going to slow things down with the content spotlights just after this. Now, in this segment of the show, Roger and I deep dive into a piece of content. It could be an article, a video, a podcast, something that can help us reflect what it means to be a marketer and a business owner in today's economy. So, Roger, what is your selection for today? Well, this is a little bit different, Pascal, but it, it sort of maintains the AI theme that we've started with within the, in the news there. This is an article, although it's an article showcasing a video that's, that appears on YouTube. The article is called terrifying ad warns parents against sharing photographs of their kids online and it's on a website called it's either peter pixel or petapixel i don't know how you pronounce it and the ar article is by pasala bandara now i watched this advert and i genuinely agree that it's a terrifying advert they've made it very well um it, it it's made like a little mini film so there's a storyline in it and of course, there's this terrifying message. And just to give you the, the very basics of it, um, it talks about how parents all over the world will think nothing of posting photographs of their children on places like Facebook and Instagram, wherever it might be. And those photographs could be, you know, close-ups of their face, they could be playing on the beach, they could be in the park, they could be sitting at home in front of the TV. What are, People don't seem to have a problem with sharing pictures of their children. Uh, now I must admit, when our son Andrew was growing up, we were a little bit reticent about putting photographs up. And when I look back through my memories on Facebook, I don't actually get that many photographs of Andrew coming up in the um, memories because we mm. took a we took a decision not to plaster photographs of Andrew across 
places like Facebook. So what happens is, is the, the assumption is that people are quite happy to share photographs of the children. So the video starts off with mum and dad going to the cinema and they've obviously left the child with a babysitter and they go into the cinema and they sit down and up onto the screen, all of a sudden comes an older version of their daughter, Ella, who they've left at home with the babysitter. And obviously this older version of Ella speaks directly to mom and dad in the audience and basically says, you know, you've been sharing photographs of me. Um, you know, I'm only nine years old, but in this, in this film, I'm older. And she then goes into quite significant detail as to how people have taken those images of her as a nine-year-old child from Facebook, from Instagram, and manipulated those images in, in any, any number of quite scary ways, including <clears throat> pornography. And the way that they, you know, they don't show anything like that, Pascal. You don't get to see. But the way that this child actually evokes what's happened, and, and also bear in mind that this older version of Ella is created entirely by AI, which is even more scary. It's really quite realistic. And she goes into all the consequences of what might happen from pornography, as I've said, to trafficking, to just, just to identity theft. You know, they've, they've upscaled a nine-year-old, made her into a 19-year-old and used that to get a passport or to get a driving license. And really, you can see the two parents sat in the audience in this cinema with their AI older daughter talking to them. And you can see the sort of the dread creeping into their face. And, and obviously the, the message of the video is, you know, be careful. If you are going to upload photographs, you know, make sure that all the privacy settings are set up to mm. the maximum level so that only people that you can trust can see them. I mean, again, you know, I, there are days on Facebook when people come up in my, in the birthday, say happy birthday to Bert Smith. And I'm thinking, I don't even remember who Bert Smith is. Did I, when did I accept his friend request? You don't know who you've got in your list. You don't know who's following you. And I think that quite a lot of people, despite the fact that we know that there have been massive data breaches and, and um, mis misgivings going on across all of these social media platforms, the amount of trust that we place in them is actually really quite scary. So, that, so that's it, Pascal. Um, nothing more than that is to say it's, it's, a, it's a scary message to put out there, but it attracted my attention for two reasons. First of all, it fits in with our current debate about AI. But secondly, it's a remarkably good piece of filmmaking. It's only about two and a half minutes long, but there's, it's genuine, there's genuine story. You would love it as a film producer yourself, but it hits absolutely hits home and lands that message. And Pasala in the article does obviously do a, a critique of the, art, of the video itself and mm. supports some of the conclusions. Wow. Thank you so much, Roger. You know, it, we didn't have time to go talk about this um, request from that um, lobby mm -hmm. with regard to making platforms more accountable mm -hmm. to being the source of you know many um, problems, including crime. But this is it. You know, for, for me, 
it's always been a mystery why the default position of a platform when you open an account is not to have your privacy setting to the max. Mm. And then you can choose to, you know, kind of uh, unlock some of those as opposed to having to find your way through the maze of settings and, and, trying, to, and trying to do that. And, and I think for me, there's a couple of things, reaction to the power of short form communication you know, what you can communicate and the emotional engagement you can have in the less than three minutes, as you've said, and the need to spell things out now, nowadays, because everything else, you know, my position would be, and I can't wait to now look into this more, is the, the um, you know, the, the simpler message out there of, you know, be careful and so on. I've not worked. So you've got to say it in story form, which mm-hmm. I think is, is just, um, you know, quite, quite powerful. And interestingly, though, when you look at the stats, um, privacy concerns, you and I have reported this in the news, is 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 very, very top. So for me, there would be a um, an advantage for a platform to put forward the fact that with you know us, the way we've done things, your, your privacy is, is more secure than than, than most. But um, it's a scary prospect, though, you know, this <laughs> the combination of the, the wealth of information that we've shared about ourselves, sometimes just you know, instantly, yes. you know, a, a birthday party or whatever, and the way which others using particularly AI are going to be you know, manipulating all of that. Indeed, indeed. So everybody, mm. take care out there. So my selection today is one that actually surprised me a little with regard to the format. You're going to say in a, in a, in a moment what that is. So it's from a platform called marketingdive.com. And this was a mini article written by Sarah Kalovich, who is the associate editor, and Jasmine Yehan, who's a news graphics developer. And it has a very kind of simple, intriguing title, Marketing in 2023, H1 by the Numbers. And H1 being the first half of the year, as in Q, Q1 or Q2. And what they've done is a compilation of stats and data that are there to illustrate the current mood and the current kind of motivations by businesses and marketers. And in fact, they've summarized their kind of selection with the subtitle, Measurement Uncertainty, mm-hmm. Budget Changes and Platform Shifts were top of mind. So they're looking at you know the, the first six months of the year. And then they've organized a, a number of, of data and, and stats into the groups of social commerce, YouTube versus TikTok, game mode, budgets, the consumer in 2023, and, and measurement uncertainty. And then what you have here then is it's a listicle, really, of, of stats with the source not being, being quoted. And, and at first, I was thinking, well, that, you know, that doesn't take a lot of effort to, um, to do something like this. You could do something a lot better. But then I've, I quickly corrected myself because I thought, no, on the contrary, it takes a lot of time to, to find the stats. It takes a lot of time to choose and select and so on. And what they've done here is creating immense value by creating an article that you can scan, read, and you don't have to necessarily react to all of them. You could share some of them with your colleagues back at work or your partners. And it reminded me a bit of what we do within the news. So if you, you know what to look back, and the six month of in the news in there we have a lot of stats as well that we've shared mm-hmm. from different mm-hmm. sources 
And I was thinking, I might speak to Roger. I literally live during the recording by this idea of, uh, of going back to, to all the in the news kind of segment for the last six months and picking out our best stats and creating maybe a mini article for, for LinkedIn or another. So for me, it was both a source of inspiration about what you can do in terms of repurposing something that would have taken you in our case six months together, you know, with each episode or all the different stats, but also becoming a source of reflection. I'm not going to go through all the different groups of, of data, but because of the um, you know the, the kind of threat through with regard to in the news, I want to talk about the consumer in 2023 and get your reaction. So four stats that were shared in there. So 72% of consumers believe companies should sacrifice the bottom line to better serve them from Gartner. 54% of Gen Z are trying to limit their time on social media. Gen Z and millennials look at more sustainability factors on labels and other consumers. And this is a one that I want to really kind of deep dive in if I could. 62% of consumers say they will stop buying from brands that compromise products to cut cost. And I have seen and I've been subjected to that compromise of a quality to cut cost quite recently uh, in France, particularly but in the UK. And as a result of which, I can no longer deal with that brand because I was so, so disappointed by the quality of the service or the product. Again, 62% of consumers said they will stop buying from brands that compromise products to cut costs. Yes. Now, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of this going on at the moment, isn't there? I mean, in the UK, products are shrinking in size. Chocolate bars are getting smaller. Packets mm -hmm. of crisps are getting smaller. I mean, I made a joke on Twitter a few weeks ago that, you know, if if this brand of crisps that I like reduces the number of crisps in a packet anymore, they'll actually be marketing by an individually wrapped crisp from, mm. uh, from us. You know, seriously, it's getting stupid. But there's also this undercurrent, isn't there? We see it in the, uh, in the news quite a lot that supermarkets are cashing in on inflation by artificially increasing the prices that they charge to effectively reap back some of the profits that they lost during the pandemic, or indeed just to blatantly profiteer. And they're using inflation as a cover. We've seen recently, certainly in the UK, that the supermarkets who at one point were often the cheapest for petrol are now blatantly amongst the most expensive. And again, there's government pressure on the supermarkets to cut their petrol costs because it's obvious that they are not passing on the reduced oil prices. So I can absolutely get this that consumers in a you know a, a pretty serious crunch like we're in at the moment where the cost of living is so high now that they will be outraged by some of the pricing decisions and that ties back to what we were saying earlier mm. about the P of price. You can't you know your price is what is important and you want to make a revenue but you can't take the p uh, as it were and i think the stat is absolutely right i think consumers will walk with their feet and brands need to be careful how far they take it so what's exciting it's about the independence because mm. there you are you've been given many ways to go in from you know uh, data privacy all the way to product quality mm. and, and, and that kind of things but i remember i started to have doubts even when um 
I used to, you know, eat a lot of porridge in the morning. And I was thinking, those sashes feel lighter. Yes. You know, because, yes. you know, you have that morning routine for years of lifting, you know, a sashay before putting into your, your cereal bowl. And you kind of go, what's going on? And sure enough, but even just 10 grams, but, you know, t- translate that to millions of sachets. And yet they charge the same price or, or a bit more. So I think for me, you know, it's all about understanding what is going on currently, looking at either the, if you want to be kind, you know, the accidental, um, you know, issues or complete, you know, and, and you know, obvious mis- bad behavior from brands. And then what can you do as an independent to kind of walk through that open door mm. to market yourself even, even more successfully? Mm, absolutely right. Yeah, these are fascinating statistics. Um, and it's, it is a bit like in the news, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about 54% of a Gen Z are trying to limit their time on social mm. media, but perhaps that's a, a discussion for another day. <laughs> no, absolutely. Now, listen, I was said many a time in the Two Geeks and Marketing podcast, none of this would be possible without the hard work of pioneers and visionaries from the distant and recent past. So let's move on to This Week in History. In 1841, the British humorous and satirical magazine Punch is first published. It helped coin the term cartoon, which back then meant a finished preliminary sketch on a large piece of cardboard, or cartone in Italian. Well, I didn't know that, but a hundred years later, in 1941, Tom and Jerry first appear under their own names in Cartoon, The Midnight Snack, by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. In 1969, American astronaut Neil Armstrong becomes the first man to walk on the moon. He was joined by Buzz Aldrin 19 minutes later. Uh, in 1988, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses finally enters a Billboard Top 40 nearly after a year of touring and the release of the album Appetite for Destruction. Sweet Child of Mine has got one of the best guitar riffs ever. That yes. introduction, that... That was a dreadful impression of it, but you know what I mean. It is. Um, and now, can I just share very, very briefly the the... Uh, the coincidence that this should be a, an event back in time when only three days ago, the time of recording, I was at the um, concert, Guns N' Roses concert in, in Paris, which was just amazing. Three and a half hours of entertainment, nonstop, three and a half hours, 31 tracks played to one of the biggest arena in, in arenas in Europe. So uh, it was just, you know, I couldn't believe it when I was doing the research that it should so happen. But for me, the, the message in that story is that they finally broke through, you know, that important recognition and milestone of being part of the Billboard Top 40 a year after all the hard work of touring and the release of the album and so on. So what is interesting for me is, is a reminder that the success comes from the hard work. It's not the other way around. It's not because the song was successful and popular that they became famous. It was a year of touring and promoting the album that led to that breakthrough song of Sweet Child of Mine. And as urban legend would have it, Slash doesn't like the intro. It thinks it's a bit rubbish, but we all love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is interesting, this. And, and I guess in the electronic and digital age now where we have auto-tuning and we have computers that can create the music, there aren't that many bands who still do what the likes of the Beatles and, mm. and the Who and the Clash from 
you know, the seventies actually went out playing their own instruments night after night in pubs and small venues and built up a following and eventually got a record contract. Now it's all about immediacy, isn't it? A quick hit, bang, bang, bang. And I want instant fame. And, and funnily enough, um, Trisha and I were talking about this the other day. We, we ended up watching some, uh, Oh, that was right. There was a, we had a, we had a few power cuts over the weekend. In fact, mm. on Saturday night, we had, the power was out for about eight hours. So we were listening to Live Aid on our phones um, just as something to do. And, and obviously we got talking. There's still quite a lot of the of the um, artists that appeared at Live Aid, which is 38, was 38 years ago on the 13th of July since Live Aid. Quite a lot of those artists are still around and they're still touring and they're still getting out there. Okay, their voices might not be as good as they used to be. And you just think maybe a lot of the bands that we know today wouldn't be around in 38 years' time. And I think it's possibly because, again, those people who spent all that time, like Guns N' Roses did, touring and building up the expertise in musicianship and in, in songwriting, <clears throat> there aren't any artists like that now. Not that many. Not that many. No, I can't and, and think of any many it's it is all about that digital immediacy and and that hasn't got the same longevity we made the same comment actually with denise so when i came back obviously completely hyper from the concert and i bought denise with uh, the, the account minute by minute and track by track of the kind of uh, the, this it was just such a an experience you know, because you had the sound you had obviously this incredible what they do nowadays as you know with the video uh, segments and and some of the animations and and of course you know getting getting on with with the, the singing as well and we made the same link which defined that there, is, there are musicians as part of the band not just a a, a performer and that uh, we made we made the same link and and back to what we're trying to do with two gigs marketing podcast which is the craft in forgive me if i may blogging the craft in you know doing a video for youtube and so on comes through basically doing it over and over mm. and over mm. again and there are no shortcuts. If there were shortcuts, we would find them by now. 2023, if there were shortcuts, Roger, we would know them and we would sh share them. Mm, and what absolutely. I find difficult for me, as as you mentioned, nearly 30 years of career in digital marketing, there seems to be always a bit of a moment of storm and chaos with the, the evolution of digital. So at the moment, we're going through the storm and chaos of AI, and I can't wait for, the, for it to settle. But it's still motivated by this, this idea that if I use AI, I can literally kind of cheat my way through mm. some form of recognition and success. When in fact, everybody tells you, I mean, if, if you bother listening to filmmakers, documentary makers, writers, authors, Stephen King, which I know you're a big fan of, they all say you just have to put the work in. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Before we go on mm -hmm. to the next section, Punch Magazine didn't realize it was that old, but I'm, I might be completely wrong here, but didn't Punch used to have, or maybe it still ha was it the, the magazine that started Let's Parlay Franglais? Yeah, because punch? it was inspired. It was inspired by French version of you know being satirical, uh, and and you know let's remember it was very brave and daring back in 1841 uh -huh. to mock the political class and, and uh -huh. would have been still remnants uh -huh. of monarchy as well. But yeah, it was inspired by a French um, kind of uh, magazine, you know, printed publication. Yeah, oh, so that's a school schoolboy memory for me because at school I did French as a as a subject, but. 
my English teacher, Steve Plows, who really, really inspired me to, to write stuff, for, even from an early age, he would often pick up the um, pages from Punch and read out the Franglais bit, um, much to the, the annoyance of the French teacher, because we would all then start <laughs> trying to talk Franglais rather than f proper French. But I always used to remember it was hilarious how they managed to mix the English and the French together to create something really mm. quite funny. So great memory that that's just jolted back to the forefront of my mind. Do you want to see extraordinary? I mean, first, uh, thank you. I didn't know that cartoon came from the Italian cartones, so uh, I'd be even better at the next quiz, you know, if there is one. <laughs> um, but the longevity, again, because um, this lasted till the early 2000s punch. There was a small... Uh, break until they, they got an investor and of course i think they couldn't quite manage transition to digital mm -hmm. but uh, that's a serious long run for for a magazine and, and it's known i mean people will ne never read punch nor of its existence yeah absolutely right uh always a pleasure but we're going to get back into the present roger so let's move on if you don't mind with marketing tech and apps <laughs> And in this segment, we surprise each other with a discovery from the intro of something that can help us be faster and more productive content creators. Roger, what is your selection for this week? We have to talk about Threads, the Threads app, <laughs> Pascal. Um, okay, so we've talked about Twitter quite a lot here on Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast. The fact that Elon Musk took it over, he's made a few mistakes. I've been on Twitter since the very beginning. I've just got shy of 10,000 followers. But for the last six months, at least I've found Twitter has become an even more polluted cesspit of right-wing nut jobs and vaccine conspiracy theorists. And of course, it would appear that Meta um, and Zuckerberg have predicted the demise of Twitter and thought we need to get a Twitter clone out there. And let's face it, Meta have got form, haven't they, at copying stuff. They copied Snapchat to create um, Instagram stories. Um, and they have effectively created this app called Threads, which is an absolute Twitter clone. I mean, I, I believe that, uh, that Twitter are considering suing them because it is so similar. But it's, it's a blatant copy, as you would expect. However, it, it, it's, it bears having a look at. And, and because we're at the forefront of um, what we're trying to do, I thought I'd better dive in and take a look. So I downloaded the app the day it was launched. It's only about a week ago. And one of the innovative things was that it is linked to your Instagram account and you can immediately follow all your Instagram followers and, and um vice versa so that you've instantly got part of your audience there whereas where i've tried some of these other twitter clones before like blue sky and mastodon it's genuinely starting from scratch and very hard to start again from to build up a, a, a series of followers especially as the likes of mastodon don't actually make it very easy to find you people so i immediately managed to get something like 400 followers on threads so the conversation started immediately and quite honestly for a day or two threads was pretty all-consuming um, I had to turn the notifications off in the end because they were constantly coming up and it did feel to me as if it was very much like Twitter was 
right back at the beginning. So no adverts, no suggestions. And I think Meta are genuinely trying to keep it ad-free for the time being. Although let's not be fooled, eventually there the will be ads. But it gen genuinely did feel to me like Twitter in the early days. However, because it was only, I guess, that percentage of people that I follow on Instagram who immediately went and got it and then immediately became part of my followers and me following them and back and everything, it very much felt like an echo chamber of people like me who mm. were just there to sort to experiment with it. And that first couple of days of really intense interaction has effectively died out now and it settled down. And what I see is quite a nice environment without all the political crap and without all the vaccine conspiracies. Um, but I'm just not sure whether people will, if Twitter survives, and, and let's face it, there's a big question mark over whether it does, I don't know whether people will pile over to threads despite the massive signups they got. Because even though you can import some of your followers from Instagram, I think it takes a lot of work especially for people who have got big Twitter followings to effectively have to start from scratch or maybe with a boost of a few hundred from Instagram or however many it might be to, to actually get there. So let's keep an eye on threads. Um, you know, I, I, maybe Zuckerberg could make this special by making a commitment to the world that this will not have adverts in it. It will not become politicized algorithm wise and it will be a safe place in which case i would i'd quite like that but if he piles in the adverts after a few weeks and then starts all the algorithm nonsense going on it'll it'll genuinely just degenerate into a, a clone of twitter and, and and why would you bother the second thing i wanted to talk about today is another app that i came across probably as a result of, of that article that i talked about in content spotlights and this is an app called mid journey and basically, it is the photo version of ChatGTP. So obviously, in ChatGTP, if you go into it, you can say, write me an article about um, Casino Royale, blah, 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 and it will give you an article about Casino Royale. With Midjourney, you basically prompt it, and it will create a picture for you. And you can, you can ask it to create a cartoon, fitting in with what we said earlier. You can ask it to create a piece of artwork so it makes it look like an oil painting or something like that or you can ask it to create a photo realistic image uh, so i downloaded this and um, obviously the free version has adverts in it and that's the most annoying thing straight away is that some of the ads are about three and a half minutes long and you can't skip them so you enter prompts so i tried businessman on a train platform with a storm brewing in the background three minutes later Here's a photograph of a businessman stood on a platform with a train coming up behind him and wind. So it does work. Mm. I have to say, though, I haven't been very impressed with some of the images that I've created so far, albeit we're talking about a sample of no more than 15. Um, you know, it doesn't look particularly realistic. Even the photorealistic ones look to me like definite simulations and i have read articles there's apparently a um a, been a guy who's used mid-journey to prove a point by creating an image of um 
Barack Obama and Donald Trump actually having an affair with somebody. Um, so you've got Barack Obama kissing this woman in stood in um, lingerie and stockings and everything. And that actually looked quite realistic. So maybe I've, maybe I haven't prompted uh, mid journey properly, but from what I've seen so far, it's a interesting little toy to play with, but didn't particularly impress me, you know, definitely wouldn't replace a properly shot photograph on a train platform with a businessman or anything like that. But Again, it's early days, isn't it? So in the same way as we'll be keeping an eye on threads, let's keep an eye on mid-journey and see how it develops. Thank you very much. And we obviously don't communicate and share what we're going to talk about. We just <laughs> populate the show notes. And every so often, and that makes sense, you know, we'll end up talking about or sharing about the same things. So my selection is about um, approaching AI tools uh-huh, differently. Uh-huh. But before I move on to my selection, thank you very much for, about threads. Um, if I may, and this might need to be more of a content spotlight moment, um, I think they've got their marketing completely wrong about threads. Mm-hmm. And briefly, I'll tell you that it still remains the fact that Twitter is one of the smallest social network out there, by comparison mm-hmm. to, to the others. So what you'd be worried about um stealing and poaching Twitter users when actually it suggests to me that there's a, an entire a global population who's, who's ignored Twitter completely mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you should be mm-hmm. going after them or convert your last users of Instagram and Messenger maybe and, and, and Facebooks. But as for, for another time, I want to talk to you about what I have seen happening over and over and over again with the evolution of digital, which is misunderstanding that may come from misinformation. So, you know, I've, I've said what we had to say about chat GPT, both in this show and the AI, AI special. And I think it's all to do with the language. And you've used the term a moment ago, you know, the, the prompt. Isn't that fascinating, Roger, that whenever there's something brand new, there's some new vocabulary that we've never (laughs) used before in our lives, which, of course, then is going to lead to people being a bit suspicious. What wouldn't you be? So I'm going to really mention two platforms um, following, you know, the kind of preface with this idea of you've got to completely change your mindset and and change the approach is this idea of forget about AI and use the term digital assistant, which has been around for a lot longer, by the way, because we've had them on our phone you know for, for much longer and this digital assistant's job if you will is to jog your memory or to encourage you or to stimulate your creativity that's essentially you know what they're there to do and if you want to get the best out of your assistant you've got to be even better at briefing and giving instruction to the to the assistant because the more enigmatic or succinct you are, the less someone can help you. And I'm talking about a real person, and as well. And of course, the effort has been here to go for natural language, but that makes it even harder to use those platforms. So, in the case of Mid Journey, and some of the photographers who have kind of wanted to prove the point. If you read the instruction they've given, they go they go on forever. They they give specs about the cameras they should use and the kind of film and co- so. If you don't know what you're talking about, you can't get the best out of your digital assistant. So it's an interesting one for me to to kind of explore, and it has been my career to challenge the language and so on. So the two platforms that can help you understand how to be better at briefing and and compiling instructions for your assistants are as follows. You have a platform called Flow GPT. Flow as in the rivers flowing, and this is a uh, by uh, I think a team of volunteers, for what it would seem, 
they've compiled a library of AI prompts, that word again. But what you do here, you essentially get inspiration for all those who have tried to get good value and good results from any platform. It could be ChatGPT, Bard, Claude, and, and, all, and all the others. As an aside, by the way, if you're going to be creating an AI platform to give you good, uh, credible answers, I would use a woman's name. You know, We all know that women are much smarter than men anyway. <laughs> so why go for always Bard or Claude or all that kind of things? So a vast, vast library. Be careful. It could be like sucking up so much of your time. So go in with a clear idea of the kind of briefing you want to be able to write, because you'll have to write it, and then search it accordingly. Flow GP team is busy. It can be a bit overwhelming. So I found uh, another one, a bit simpler in terms of the interface, more visual, called Logic Balls, and no laughing in the back of the room. So Logic Balls, again, run by a team of individuals, have gone about this business of discovering and reviewing free AI-powered apps and tools that are there to unlock your creative potential. So they won't do the work for you, but what they will do is give you a steer towards how to potentially write instructions for mid-journey, GPT, and many others. But please understand... It's about um, looking after, if I may be so bold, a digital assistant. Yeah, let, let's also not buy courses by people for $97, a million <laughs> chat GTP prompts or a million mid-journey prompts. Buy my course for $97. Crikey, even by the end of the first day, of threads being out there and i put a jokey tweet up or jokey thread whatever they call it thread up there saying how long will it be before somebody comes up with a course on how to use threads for 97 dollars by the end of the day i saw a post from somebody on linkedin claiming to be a threads expert um you know you've got to be very very careful that there's this sort of um, jumping on the bandwagon expert oblique guru thing that's going on mm. at the moment is just becoming ridiculous so it's much better to focus on something like this like flow gtp and logic balls which where people are genuinely trying to help rather than just cashing in and claiming to be an expert on something that actually probably know nothing about yeah superb listen this has flown by because we have reached the last segment of two geeks and a marketing podcast film marketing just after this So, Roger, you chose Casino Royale, released in 2006. Feels like an eternity ago. Let's watch a trailer. Your file shows no kills. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists, which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. It doesn't bother you killing those people. Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. 
Heart of Girl melted your cold heart yet? James, get the girl out. You're not going to let me in there. You've got your armor back on. I have no armor left. You've stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. I'm yours. The only question remains. Will you yield? In time? What a film. What a film. Uh, yeah, like you, Pascal, I can't believe that we're coming up to 18 years since Casino Royale and Daniel Craig's uh, debut as James Bond. Mm. Again, watching that trailer, it was it was such a landmark moment, wasn't it? It was a complete reboot of the franchise. Um, the, the, you know, previous Pierce Brosnan on his way out, completely new direction with Daniel Craig coming in. And I mean, I think I remember at the time, quite a lot of people saying, well, Daniel Craig's not a James Bond. You know, John James Bond's not blonde hair. He's got black hair. Doesn't look like Sean Connery. Doesn't look like Dalton, Brosnan, etc. This isn't going to work. But I think that the, the, the quality of the film that we got was probably absolutely necessary to carry off the complete reboot that they that they um, had in mind. I think had the film been a bit of a mediocre film, it could have killed the franchise completely. So on the one hand, they made a very brave decision to try and re reinvigorate it and take it in a different direction, but they also had a lot of um, pressure on them to create an absolutely standout movie. And and I think they succeeded on both counts. I think, you know, we, we forget because now we've had the pleasure of all the others, yeah. including No Time to Die, reviewed on to Geeks and Marketing Podcast and Skyfall and all the others. Um, the pressure, you know, perhaps now is just, you know, a vague memories for the producers and the filmmakers, but it was mm -hmm. real. I remember it was particularly print media that was pretty scathing about um, Daniel Craig and I was completely confused, a bit like, you know, earlier within the news, I was thinking, well, uh, do you not watch movies like I do? Have you yeah. not seen Layer Cake, for example? Why do you have such a strong, strong position? It was such ill-informed. I was completely, um, you know, confused by the whole thing. I just couldn't wait to see it. Um, and you talk about, you know, being brave. The whole movie feels like a series of brave decisions mm. to begin with from the title, Casino mm. Royale. This is almost like the, uh, the, the the cursed movie, you know, because it exists, as we know, as this kind of bizarre, bizarre kind of construct of a comedy that I didn't, I couldn't watch all of it. I was too embarrassed, you know. <laughs> um, 
so you've, you've got that. You've got obviously, you know, the decisions around um, the, the actor, although that you were always going to have naysayers, but also the the storytelling, the the grittiness, the violence, but also um, I want to spend some time with, with you on that. You know, the, the the whole opening, the first quarter of an hour, 20 minutes is so, so very different and they had to do that. Yeah. And okay. So, so assuming that they've, they've taken this decision, it's complete reboot. So the very first scene is almost um, going back to the day that James Bond was promoted to being a double O agent. Um, and that's when he became 007. And, and, and actually, unless you've read the original book of Casino Royale, the first James Bond book, you wouldn't know that in order to become a double O, you have to make two mm. kills. And of course, the, the pre-credit sequence is James Bond making those two kills. So immediately you know that in this reboot, this is at the moment that James Bond becomes a double O, whereas I guess in the in all the movies in the past, he'd already made that that leap to being the double mm. O agent. Um, we only get M, um, played by Judi Dench, as the surviving character from the rest of the franchise earlier on. So we don't have a Q, um, we don't have a Miss Moneypenny, um, and I suppose we have Felix Leiter, but it's a different actor, so I don't, I don't include that. Um, but it, in, in as far as that was concerned, it was a completely different movie. And we didn't really even get the James Bond theme until right at the end. Um, you know, we, we might get the odd little bit of the uh, da, 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 maybe during the film at significant points, but it wasn't the full blown theme until right at the end. So the, the, you definitely knew you were seeing something different. But yes, much more physical violence that first sequence, you know, it's exhausting to watch it. It's it's exciting. Don't get me wrong. It's one of the most exciting chase sequences I've ever seen in a movie, but you genuinely see them getting hurt and it's physical violence, isn't it? And Quite, I mean, all, all, and bruises. all the practical effects, you're right, practical effects, mm. bruises. I mean, I, I thought, you know, that back to Brave Decisions, so the, the first element is in black and white, very grainy as well. Yes, Almost yes. like you think, have they made a mistake somehow? And the way they introduced the gun barrels was very, very clever. Then we get into the shift, but within moments, we went to Madagascar. And, and I knew because, actually, that the marketing did lean on some of that sequence with the, the French parkour uh, creator, Sebastian Foucault, when they are mm -hmm. chasing each other, mm -hmm. I mean, and taking incredible risks, you know, including the stunt doubles and, and so on. And so within the first quarter of an hour, you go, all right, this is a different universe. This is a different bond. Um all right, I'm, I'm all yours. Take me on this ride into, you know, what you are reinventing for us. Yeah, and... I found an article when I was doing the research for this about the significant change in cinematography in Casino uh -huh. Royale, which perhaps until I read this article, I hadn't, even I hadn't conceived of the massive change, even though it's obvious when you watch it. So I'll link it to it in the in the show notes. And, and, and suffice to say that this article is very detailed and it strips down quite a few of the scenes within the movie and shows you how it would have been shot in a previous Bond film compared to how it's shot in Casino Royale. And you can see the difference. And again, you you wouldn't know this 
um, as a general watcher of these movies. But quite a lot of the earlier James Bond films, even though they were very exciting and they had a lot of action, quite a lot of the scenes were very static. So, you know, you had you had M's office. And it was often quite a long shot with James sure, yeah. Bond walking across to the desk and M sat behind the desk. Or if they were in a casino, it would be a long shot of the casino, then quite close up. If you watch Casino Royale, there's so much more movement. The camera follows the people around. They, 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 the lighting is much more important in all the scenes. The mood, the lighting. And on, think about the, the scene on the train with Vespa Lind as they go to Montenegro compared to the the scene where he's being tortured by Le Chiffre at the end. The lighting and the mood, it's all so much more planned than ever before. In fact, again, you watch quite a lot of the earlier Bond movies and actually you realise how quite bright they all are and, and uh, glossy, whereas this was re- really rugged and really down to earth. And I think that that highlights that complete, an utter transformation and as a cinema photographer and a film producer yourself you, you would notice that more than most people but this article really rammed it home to me how much of a difference that made uh, that, that's lovely because you're right you know that they, they even went as far as diff- which is now almost a, a given different color palettes for different emotions different locations and so on mm. so it's in a way for me as i'm listening to you it's almost a movie where they they had to Break some rules to mm. to surprise mm. the character himself. Break rules. I mean, when he literally breaks into M's apartment, yes. and, you know. So we talk about they're not they're not in the office. They're literally in her apartment. You know, private quarters. Yes. Even breaks into her computer systems. So by extension, have they broken any rules, or they've been brave with the marketing itself? Well, it's I, I actually found it quite hard to find much about the marketing of this film, which surprised me. I thought that it was such a big hit and they made such a big deal about rebooting it. I just thought I'd be able to find an absolute treasure trove of stuff. But actually, when it comes down to it, a lot of it revolves around the poster and the trailer. And then I guess the big promotional elements came in from the brands that were working with them in the product slots within the film. So we'll just go through very briefly. Um, the, the poster is, I, I, I love this poster. It is actually quite simple. It's got a white background with the 007 and the gun motif sort mm. of faded into the background. There's a proper shot of Daniel Craig wearing his tux, but with his bow tie un, untied, which I thought was quite cool, looking very much like J- you would expect James Bond to be. But then the intriguing part of the poster is in the background. You can see the the Aston Martin car. You can see the Gothic-style building of the casino hotel itself. But those background images are actually within the silhouette of Vespa, played by Eva Green. You don't see her face, you just see her Mm. outline. And to me, that is evocative of the massive, massive presence that this character of Vespa Lind has. I mean, if you think back to all the earlier James Bond films, with the exception of Tracy, I guess, who has been referenced in Bond films after that, that he he was married to her, etc., etc., Vespa Lynn plays such an incredibly important and emotional part in Casino Royale that she is still felt in all of the others that came after 
even up even up to the end of No Time right. to Die, Vespa Lind was still part of Daniel Craig's era. And that poster to me with her silhouette in the background is almost it's almost a premonition of that. Her silhouette is there all the time. I, I think I'm, I'm sure they didn't have that in mind when they designed the poster, but that's the way it, it feels to me. And now that you're saying this, thank you very much because I didn't appreciate as well. That makes sense then for her to be so present in the trailer because yeah. I was thinking, you know, as someone who's watched it again only yesterday in 2023, that trailer is is awfully uh, full of spoilers. I mean, mm-hmm. you can literally watch the trailer and go, what's the point of going to see Cousin Royale? Yeah. And you could be forgiven to think, well, there's a lot of her character in that trailer. And what about it's meant to be a Bond movie? But, you know, I, I think this back to this idea of watch the film and then look back at the posters and the trailers and you get that extra reward, as we've mentioned time and time again. Yeah, I mean, you you look back now and it was, it, yes, it was a James Bond film, but ultimately it was probably a, more than ever a genuine love story between man and woman, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the James Bond films in the past, the women have just been there to have the closing <laughs> shag at the end of the film. Um, there was always, you know, the closing shag at the end of the film, but this is, you know, it is key to the entire look and feel of the film. And and I suppose that then takes you into the, you know, beyond the trailer, beyond the um, uh, the poster, it's hard to find anything else that the producers did. Now, the website long since has gone. There is a, there is a sort of mini website on the 007 official website, but not the original um, Casino Royale website. The only thing I could find that still exists, believe it or not, is the Casino Royale Facebook page, but that hasn't really got much on it. So the rest of the marketing around the film was actually done by some of the products that were placed within the film. Now, we've said before that uh, James Bond films pioneered product placement, you know, way, even way back to the beginning of Dr. No and, and, uh, and Goldfinger and From Russia With Love, they were placing products within the films. I can remember in Moonraker, significant adverts for British Airways appearing in that film. In Casino Royale, we've got six brands that mainly take center stage. There's Heineken, Ford, Smirnoff Vodka, Sony, Sony Ericsson, and Omega Watches. And you can't help. I mean, it's sometimes it's almost blatant how they, you know, she makes a, they have a conversation about his watch when they're sat on the train at dinner. But each of these big brands ran their own significantly huge marketing campaigns. Now, those marketing campaigns were about their brands. So Heineken did a Casino Royale campaign, but it was about Heineken. It wasn't really about Casino Royale. But if you look at what they did, they actually created a advert which was obviously shot at the same time because it uses the same locations as the film uh, maybe a slightly different feel but it has Vespa Lynn played by Eva Green um, effectively climbing the stairs in the hotel trying to get to the hotel room thinking that this Heineken bottle that's been sent up by the waiter is actually an assassination attempt and she's trying to rescue Bond <laughs> so they almost created a completely separate mini film and it's a really actually quite good advert a little bit cheesy perhaps but it works really well and Heineken had their own website 
with a meet with a countdown clock to the world premiere lots of pictures of vespa there was you know there was a quiz built into it like who's your favorite bond girl vespa lynn mary goodnight jinx xenia on a top pussy galore etc obviously it was promoting heineken so to to me it was it it was very much a, a film that was marketed by the partners as opposed to marketed by the producers assuming that there wasn't anything that i've missed but i couldn't find anything other than the poster and the and the trailers no and and talking about breaking rules or so to speak you know restraint being maybe something that they wanted to to do to accompany the film and yeah and do something that i've got as far as saying is is more elegant than sometime to use M's uh, expression, blunt instruments of previous iteration of Bond, where sometimes it was so distracting, that, you know, because some of the brand positioning uh, was uh, in the double figures, and you kept being distracted by, you know, drinks and cars and, and, that, and that kind of things. What, what what I think is probably telling us is that there was a lot of print media, because my mm. memory, particularly around you know this idea of um, people being quite negative about Daniel Craig, there was a lot of interviews with the producers, particularly Barbara Broccoli, taking over from her dad. And and the uh, and the directors about you know how they wanted to protect the franchise and the brand, well, they, how they wanted to move on with the times. So I remember reading a lot of articles. And at the time, I was buying film um, magazines like Impact and Total Film and so on. But the web, I mean, two thousand six. You know, we, we only yeah. give or take ten years onto you know the the web being public to the point that we we know it. So that would make a, a, a lot of sense. But maybe it's back to this idea of it was a very tight and well controlled um marketing campaign. They didn't have the maybe the abundance because that could have been tempting, couldn't it, Roger? Mm. You relaunch the Bond franchise four years uh, after a four year break, temptations to go all out, all big, and mm. maybe serve them well to kind of keep it quite confined. Yeah, and I can remember obviously um at the time on TV, seeing this the shot of Daniel Craig coming out of the water with his um, perf- perfectly <laughs> preserved torso, um, that was that must have been a TV shot or a TV slot uh, or, or whatever at the time. But it, it, I, I couldn't find any of those. So, some in other interesting stuff, which isn't really marketing related, but it did catch my attention that film geeks like us would would look at. There's a fabulous article on Den of Geek about Casino Royale, claiming mm-hmm. that it's actually three films within one. Um, and this guy actually says there's a movie about the plane, which is the first bit um, where he rescues the sky, the sky uh, plane. There's the second part, which is what which he calls the poker game. And then there's the third film, which is set in Venice. And what he says that each of these three sections could actually almost stand alone. And in, interestingly enough, there's only Bond and later Vespa that figure prominently in any two of those so this film is less a beginning middle and end and more a film one film two film three which i thought was a would probably legitimize as having a chat all on its own uh, some other really interesting trivia that uh, that that i just thought was uh, was quite fascinating was obviously there's the quite cheesy cameo by richard branson yes. <laughs> during the film you know so blink and miss it and of yeah. course um the the pettiness of uh, corporate relations but apparently when uh, british airways showed the film on their planes they edited that bit out uh, because they didn't <laughs> they didn't want uh, their customers to be seeing richard branson i even believe there's a the shot of a virgin plane in one of the scenes at miami airport that they actually um, digitally changed to make it a different airline so that i thought that was extremely petty um 
the this Bond film had the most BAFTA nominations for a Bond mm. film ever, total of nine. Um, the original book, uh, the game of cards they played was Baccarat or Chemin de Fer, I guess is the French way of saying it, uh, whereas they changed it to Texas Hold'em Poker. Now, I don't understand how either game works, to be perfectly honest, but what I do like is that in Texas Hold'em, apparently a pair of eights is called an octopussy, which is quite a nice uh, tie back nice. to an earlier James yeah, Bond yeah. film. Uh, one afternoon um, of shooting, they destroyed three Aston Martin DBS oh, cars, oh. valued at 300 grand each, so you can tell that's a lot. So they the demolished nearly went. one million pound worth dollar worth of, of cars in one of cars mm. yeah um obviously music you know my oh. name great great theme oh. tune loved it um was the first bond film since dr no that didn't have scantily clad women flying around on the screen um some great some great dialogue i think you picked up this bit <laughs> vespers on the train she says i'm the money and james bond says every penny of it maybe that's a, a little nod to the fact that money, miss money penny isn't in the film um and obviously you've already made reference to the um, parkour free running bloke who was just absolutely amazing and then of course the final line in the movie just before the credits and the full James Bond film crack, crack, crash in. It's a, the name is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> absolutely and superb. Superb. And you know that this could be a false memory, but I'm absolutely convinced I read articles where they were torn about whether this should be the end, as in when he catches Mr. White and introduces his name, or should it be the beginning of Quantum of Solace? You know, yes. they were torn between the two. And I'm so glad they chose for the latter. Well, let's give the audience what, what they've been waiting. Because this is also a long movie. It's nearly two and a half hours, which yeah, is yeah, another yeah, yeah. very brave decision. Um, yeah. So let give the audience, you know, the final kind of salute introduction. And then you're right, the moment he finishes that line, it cuts to, you know, the, the, the gems bomb theme we've been hearing listening since 1962 so uh wow thank you roger it, it was just brilliant to not only watch it again yep uh, recently and you know it was delightful because you watch it with the 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 information knowledge of the what's coming next so some of the lines uh, and when they are confused by the network and they don't know who's behind all of this and so on but we we know um makes watching Cousin royale uh, even more uh, you know, in, enjoyable. So thank you very much for choosing that for, for today's episode 102 of Two oh. Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. Fantastic. It was such a, a trip down memory lane for such a great movie. Thank you. And thank you for watching and listening to Two Gigs and a marketing podcast. Really, truly, truly appreciate your support. So please subscribe if you haven't already. Leave your comments and suggestions in usual places. Until the next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Mm -hmm.